Hey, good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to another edition of Get in the Herd. Today is Friday, May 8th, 2020, and today our very special guest is Colette McEachin. Colette McEachin is the Commonwealth Attorney of Richmond City. Um, she won her seat in a special election November 5th last year after uh, serving as interim uh, 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 Commonwealth attorney, and I have had the pleasure of knowing her since before she won the primary. And after the primary, we sort of knew where that was going to go from there. So welcome, Colette. I also have as my co-host here, uh, Peter W. He is a participant here at the McShin Foundation. He's uh, some of you who watch this show or, or hear the podcast regularly, regularly will know that he is one of the participants we check in with on Tuesdays uh, the last few weeks. So welcome, Colette, and we're glad to have you here. Um, thank you for joining us. Is there anything you would like to say to, to, to introduce yourself that I missed? Uh, <laughs> you hit all the high points. Um, thank you, Nathan and Peter, and thank you, McShin Foundation, for giving me the chance to speak to uh, all your listeners out there. I hope we're going to have a really good discussion. Excellent. Thank you. Well, we've asked you here today um, to just continue the conversation around substance use disorder and how the criminal justice, uh, the, the criminal justice uh, community, um, including the courts, the jails. We had uh, we had the sheriff of Henrico County on yesterday and we talked on how things are happening in the jails right now. Um, but what we wanted to touch on is how things are going you know, with COVID-19 particularly, but also how we are doing uh, you know, with the new the new team in in Richmond, how we're doing with courts and working with substance use disorder these days, Colette? Any thoughts as uh, we begin this conversation? Um, I think um, that things are going as well as can be expected. Um, I think that uh, it's always difficult to get agencies to work together in the best of times, and then when you have a pandemic on top of that. Um, and the health concerns about people um, doing basic things like keeping the courthouse clean, keeping the jail clean, receiving um, participants into programs. When you add that as another layer, it, it complicates matters, but I think it has also brought to for a lot of um, a lot of things that uh, my agency and the sheriff and I'm sure um, McShin are going to look in the future about how to connect people and how to make um, people's lives easier. Excellent. And now I know Richmond City Jails uh, has a, a robust substance use disorder program, um, could always, of course, be more robust. Um, how are things progressing right now? Do you know how things are progressing right now um, in, in what we are calling here the, the age of COVID? Yeah, <laughs> the age of COVID, yes. So um, I know I know right now, obviously, that the sheriff, because of all the concerns of COVID, is not um, having uh, people who are not either working in the jail or incarcerated in the jail enter the jail. And so the programs that she is able to maintain and that she does want to maintain are being done through tablets. And so she is making sure that uh, inmates have access to tablets and she has made the cost of those tablets free. So they're not being charged for their use of the tablets. Um, and so that's, that's been very helpful. So she's trying to do, I know um, she's also making sure that um, uh, 
program contributors, if they have materials that people need to write on, such as journaling or things like that, that those are um, made available to the um, inmates in the jail. So she is trying to uh, maintain that community contact and that therapeutic contact with the people in the jail so that there isn't uh, any backsliding. Excellent, yeah. And as far as your role, what is your role in working with uh, the population of, of individuals who come to you with a substance use disorder who have criminal charges? Mm -hmm. um, how do you work, well, how do you work with individuals and in, in ensuring that people are going to the best place to actually rehabilitate to get people well um, instead of just you know locking people up? Yeah, yeah, that's crucial. I mean, I I would like to think that society as a whole has moved from the incarcerated in prison everyone um, side of the coin to recognizing that um, uh, substance abuse treatment, mental health treatment um, are all components of, of keeping society healthy as a whole. And you can't lock everybody up and everybody doesn't stay locked up. And the sheriff and I are the first to recognize that her facility is not the best therapeutic facility for most people. And um, so what my office tries to do from the beginning when somebody is charged is figure out why is this happening and what can we do to prevent it from happening in the future? And that, that, includes, that includes drug charges. And so um, for most people, their first drug charges are in general district court, which is the lowest trial court. And so um, we have a program where um, a lot of people uh, start off with marijuana or paraphernalia um, or some, some less serious drugs to a certain extent. And for those people where that is their first drug offense, we offer a very generous first offender um, program where you don't even... Um, uh, you don't, there is no plea of guilty. So you're charged, you come to court, you have a lawyer or you don't have a lawyer as is your choice. And then assuming that it's a lower level drug offense, you are offered the chance to do community service on a general continuance as opposed to pleading guilty. And once you, uh, once you complete your community service, then the charge can be dismissed and you can then expunge it because you were never you never pled guilty and you certainly were never found guilty. And so that helps a lot of people in that immediate uh, instance with that charge. And then it also helps them long-term because now they don't have a criminal record that reflects that they were even charged, um, that they were uh, ever found guilty uh, of a marijuana conviction or a paraphernalia conviction. Is that something uh, separate from uh, what I understand to be a 251, a first yes. offender's law. Yes. That's separate. Yes. So that'd be separate. Okay. Yes. Excellent. It sounds better. Yeah. It sounds a lot better. Um, as somebody who's been personally affected by a first drug possession charge in a in a different part of the state where the law where the law is applied uh, unevenly, mm -hmm. or I should say differently. How about that? Um, I appreciate hearing you have a, a broader idea and understanding of how we can better help people. Um, I know my my colleague slash participant friend over here, um, he and I were discussing earlier today how we can better um, 
help people transition out of the jails, out of, out of trouble, you know, essentially into society in a, in a more meaningful way. Um, so we're not just putting people back on the streets and into a bad economic situation, uh, a, a bad family situation. And, and of course, for us as a, as a recovery community organization, McShin, uh, we are one part of a puzzle of, of continuous and rehabilitation. So we're wondering, the question I suppose we have is, how can we work better with you or how have you worked with organizations like ours to better you know, impact society so that we're actually putting A, a public health care issue as a public health care issue, and B, prioritizing public safety in a way that we're creating better and healthier citizens and not just people who have criminal records. So I would say that um, we are always interested in figuring out how not to have a situation where someone reoffends. And so we want to work with as many um, positive organizations as possible. Obviously, they need to be vetted, right? So it can't just be any mom and pop who says, oh, you know, please release X person and I'll make sure that, you know, they stay out of trouble. Well, we need something a little more um, stringent than that. We need something with a few more um, uh, levels of, of, of concern and security and and and. Um, and hope for the person. So when someone is being released from incarceration, um, from the jail, the jail first has a program where they spend, I want to say at least 30 days, but maybe 60 to 90 days before the release date, talking with the person and trying to figure out, do you have a place to go to? Do you have a job? Um, what can we do so that you're not released, you're homeless, you have no support, you don't have your medications, um, and, and you're, you know, roaming around Richmond, that is just, you know, trouble begging to happen. So the jail does that, but then we are also working with people um, and their attorneys so that if uh, their charge ends up with something that has to be um, where there has to be some amount of incarceration. If we know that you're going to be incarcerated for this amount of time, but then we're going to do a bed-to-bed transfer from the jail to RBHA, which is the Richmond Behavioral Health Authority, or a bed-to-bed transfer from the jail to some other place so that there isn't any um, chance that that person will slip through the cracks in the community, we will do that. If it's a situation where we set up some term of incarceration, the person can come back, the the defendant's uh, attorney can come back and say, we have found a place for this person. Can we modify the terms of the sentence so that this person can be released to go to this facility? So we try to to work with um, defendants and with their families and with their attorneys to put them in a better situation than spending all their time incarcerated and not having any support to get them through the problem that got got them incarcerated to begin with. Excellent. You mentioned a vetting process for organizations. Um, Do you you, uh, perhaps cast some light on what you see as a, a 
a, a good, healthy, robust, I love that word today, robust recovery community organization. Uh, what are you looking for in that process? Um, so I, I am not the person who does it personally, but I will say that what our office is looking for is a program that, you know, hopefully has some background to it, has some history to it, um, is, is financially stable, has um, some level of um, peer support, community support, community engagement, um, demonstrates that uh, it has enough either clinical aspects or therapeutic aspects um, to deal with whatever the particular um, problem is that they're, they're trying to, to solve. Excellent. Well, as you may or, or may not be aware, we have kept our facility open. Uh, we have closed off the day program. We, we've limited access to the day program to our intensive participants. We mm -hmm. have a couple levels of housing here. Um, we have 11 houses. You may also may or may not know that. And in our housing, we have the structure, we have the intensive participants, and then our step-up houses. Most of the people in those houses, you know, have a day job, you know, or a job. Um, they go back and forth to work. They pay their, their bed fees on a regular basis. And we hold each other accountable and create groups uh, within our home, you know, family structure almost. In, in our house, I'm a house leader in one of our houses. In our house, we eat together um, almost every night. Um, in fact, I'm looking forward to homemade chili tonight. Um, <laughs> it smells so good. Um, <laughs> uh, we, we have fun with the food. Um, where I'm going with that is, you know, as far as a therapeutic community goes, we're still here and we're looking at, at the support that we get from the community. We have the peers, the peer access and, and really trying to find new ways to engage with your office with other offices around here as we see this um, trend of decarceration, the word I've, I've been using a lot lately as well. Um, when I spoke with uh, General uh, Commonwealth Attorney Shannon Taylor a few days, a few weeks ago, she, I think we were at 17% reduction of number of inmates in Virginia. I'm not sure where the numbers are today, but I know that trend has been decreasing, you know, going down as we've been trying to release people early who don't pose a, a threat to society and also i think people who are at like the last you know few months of their their trend of their uh, term so how are you looking how, how is that working in richmond for one thing how are you looking at with the numbers right now so um the numbers that i can give you are that uh, let's see the covid crisis kind of came to uh full bloom around the middle of march and within a week or two, I had asked the sheriff to give me a list of inmates who were either pregnant or uh, about to be released within 60 days of uh, that date or uh, were 60 years of age or older. And once I got that list, I went over it with um, the attorneys in my office and we selected those people who we thought would pose the least um, uh, danger if they were released. Um, and so we were able to release roughly 50 people that first time. Uh, am I getting that right? I think 30 to 50 people. And then I did a second list a few weeks later and we released another uh, 22 or 25 people. Uh, so, so far, I, 
I want to say that maybe out of looking at roughly 100 to 110 people, we've released about half. And those release dates are carrying up right now until July 4th. So um, the court system, as you know, is on a restricted, it's open, but it's on a restricted um, schedule. And so the uh, Supreme Court has just extended um, that restriction throughout all courts in Virginia until June 8th, I wanna say. But some courts in Richmond, like the General District Court and Circuit Court, are trying to see if they can um, hold some matters between May 15th until that June date. So there are a couple of dates floating out there. Um, and if for some reason this um, pandemic situation continues, then I will ask the sheriff for yet another list of people who say are going to be released, would be scheduled to be released by September 4th, by Labor Day, just to choose a date and see if I can, um, if it would be safe to release them, if they have a place to go, if it's, um, you know, because I don't want to set somebody up for failure. So I don't want the person to be released and then they overdose in two or three days or they're homeless. Um, so we, we try to balance um, all of that. And I, I really appreciate what you just said there because we have seen an uptick in overdoses and we have seen an uptick of people being released to this uh, what the new economy here what were the numbers in the in the paper today as far as unemployment go yeah. it's it's staggering and with the idea that in a few more weeks you know maybe this will be back to some sort of semblance of before but it's going to take time and releasing people now I, I get the i get the struggle because i you know as a person in recovery who is adamant that you know people in recovery who are working towards recovery should not be in jail mm -hmm. i also don't want to see come out and do what we do. And that can be, you know, sometimes, um, you know, bumps in our recovery where we might relapse or, yeah. you know, in, in instances overdose and then even die. So, you know, organizations like ours and, you know, partnering with organizations, with agencies like yours, you know, is important to us, important to me <laughs> um, to, to make sure that we can do what we can to really help and, and, and be, you know, there, especially at as there are no jail programs really happening in a meaning in, in a meaningful way, right. you know that that back and forth. You know, even here, as um, we had sheriff, um, uh, um, uh, excuse me, the sheriff of Henrico County in here yesterday. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, on, on screen, and she and I were talking about the the same thing about the tablets. So they don't have tablets in Henrico County yet, but they're looking at doing Zoom meetings in the jails and you know which is something that we've been incorporating as part of our recoveries you know outside the jails because we haven't had those that access and the, that connection is being missed um you know in the language of the rooms uh when i say the rooms 12-step fellowships um the therapeutic value of one addict helping another is without parallel mm -hmm. or as we say here, authentic peer-to-peer -peer recovery. And so I'm a person in recovery. Peter's a person in recovery. Todd's a person in recovery, our beautiful and fantastic producer over there. Um, and so, you know, we, we are protecting our recovery and we're looking at ways to help protect recovery in the jails while we can't go in there. So I appreciate what you're saying there. What are the normal numbers this time of year? Um, Sheriff yesterday was saying that it's usually for her about 1300 um, and they're down to just over a thousand right now. Mm -hmm. So she was looking at saying that it's, it's a pretty big drop right now. How is crime in Richmond city? How about that? 
<laughs> so um, that's a better question, I guess. So, so I'll answer that question in two parts. So, regarding the jail, the jail population is definitely down. I want to say that um, in the middle of March, just as COVID was breaking, there might have been roughly 800 people in the jail, and now there are, I think, maybe 600. So that's a drop of 200 people. Um, you know, and obviously some of that is through our uh, modification of their sentence. Some people's sentences were just up, the, you know, the jail population changes. But I think we are all very sensitive and attuned to the fact at, uh, that we are not trying to incarcerate those people who don't need to be incarcerated in order to protect the greater community. And I want to give a shout out to the Richmond Police Department because they are also part of um the community, and they are also making every effort to not arrest people who can be given a summons, like a traffic ticket, right, and just be told to come to court on your, you know, sometimes on your assault, on your petty larceny, on your trespass, on your vandalism. Um, and so we are trying, all of us, all of our agencies are trying to to restrict the people who have to be in the jail to those people who are dangerous, either to themselves or others, and really do have to be in the jail. So that would be number one. Mm -hmm. um, and then number two, just generally crime enrichment. Um, so I was, I was interested in how the uh, pandemic would affect crime and some of it you could anticipate. So because more people are in their homes, um, home invasion burglaries are down, but commercial burglaries are up because the businesses are closed and they're vacant. And so people aren't in them. So um, domestic violence is up because when there was a bad family situation and now you can't get away from each other, it's a really bad family situation. Um, unfortunately, to your point, Nathan, I have not seen any reduction in the number of overdoses or people who um, the police have to give Narcan to um, or overdose fatalities in a lot of the hotels in Richmond on, you know, Jeff Davis and Chamberlain um, Avenue, uh, Chamberlain Road is being two big thoroughfares north and south in the city. So um, and then unfortunately, um, you know, cr uh, serious crime is still occurring. And so there are still homicides. There are still aggravated malicious woundings. There are still shootings. So it, it's a mixed bag. Yeah. I appreciate the, the candor there. Um, we were talking earlier today uh, about uh, what we're we talking about today. Uh. <laughs> I'm trying to involve Peter here. Come, Peter, do you have any, some questions for the for the Cobbles attorney? Uh, well, I don't know what you were talking about when we, what we were talking about <laughs> earlier today. It's some honesty. But um, one question I did have was when you have, I can understand if you see someone with a simple possession or possession charge, you can help them get to treatment and things like that. But I feel like it complicates things when you have maybe a theft charge or something like that. Like, do you incarcerate them or send them to treatment? And how do you deal with that and telling who to send to treatment and who to incarcerate? So if somebody is picked up, I'll, I'll use your example, Peter. If somebody is picked up um, for um, uh, 
sometimes grand larceny, let's say it's a grand larceny auto. And when they're arrested, they've got drugs on them. They've got some schedule one or two drugs on them, right? So we've got the grand, grand larceny auto and we've got the possession of controlled one or two substance. In Richmond, unlike most of the jurisdictions surrounding Richmond, neither one of those charges are um, charges that carry a rebuttable presumption against jail. And neither one of those charges, unless there's some other things going on, either in your criminal history or you are somehow the mastermind of this, you know, auto larceny ring, um, <laughs> are going to prevent you from getting a bond. And so hopefully what your attorney will do, and I just can't um, over, um, I, I can't tell you how important your attorney is in what will happen to you. Um, but hopefully while you are out on bond, you will be honest with your attorney and say, okay, look, you know, I'm ready to acknowledge that I have a drug problem and I'm, you know, stealing cars to fuel my drug problem or to pay off my dealer or whatever the case might be um, to make rent because I can't get a job because I've got the drug problem and I can't stay clean and sober long enough to, you know, um, do better at work. If you tell your attorney that, hopefully your attorney will tell us that. And your attorney will say, look, Colette, um, better than having this guy plead to two felonies in circuit court, let's get him into treatment. And if he complies with treatment, can we consider reducing these felonies to misdemeanors? Mm -hmm. And if that can happen, then we have someone who has addressed the underlying drug issue and is not a felon so that therefore they are not penalized for the rest of their life with that status. So that's what our office is trying to do in, in all cases. Now, I will be honest, if you are a drug dealer, then it's, you know, the gloves are off and it's a whole different situation because a drug dealer is just like somebody spreading COVID, right? You, you are putting something that is dangerous into the community. You know it's dangerous. You don't know who it's going to affect. You don't know how deep that effect is going to be. So yeah, you know the person you're selling to, but that person has a family that is being affected by the drugs that you sold them. That person has children who are being affected by the drugs that you sold them. That person has um, a grandmother or an auntie who is letting them stay in their apartment. But now you're bringing this drug traffic into their apartment and into their life. You know, you're poisoning the community. So I, I have no sympathy or tolerance for someone who is doing that. I have all of the, um, I want to give all of the, um, the resources that the Commonwealth has to those people who are willing to address their personal drug usage and um, hopefully prevent that from occurring in the future. And that's this is a good point um, that uh, a former board member of mine asked me about a couple of days ago. She asked me to ask you, 
um, the difference between a dealer who is, you know, not necessarily kingpin, but but a guy who's just indiscriminately selling everywhere, mm-hmm. and the difference between that and a, and a and person who is dealing really simply to support the habit. And I know that that to to someone who may not be in recovery or you know may not be know much about addiction, that distinction may not be as clear, but. Do you look at that? Are you looking at, you know, the amounts of that, that people are selling, who they're selling to maybe, um, and why, you know, what's the underlying cause there too? Because, you know, at some point, you know, that that can happen. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. And so no drug case is looked at in isolation, right? So by the time we get to a court where there's going to be some final decision made, whether it's in general district court, and the charge is going to be handled as a misdemeanor or whether it's in circuit court and the charge is going to be handled as a felony, perhaps. Um, We are looking at your entire criminal history. We are talking with your attorney. And once again, hopefully you are telling your attorney what's going on. Um, Let me just put a little, little pause in that, Nathan, and you may have to bring me back. I think a lot of people, a lot of people don't know or recognize that, a prosecutor cannot talk to a person who is represented by an attorney. It is unethical for us to do that for the obvious reasons, right? And so we only know what your attorney tells us. And going downstream, your attorney only knows what you tell them. And so it puts um, a prosecutor in a difficult position when you're in court Um, and you hear for the first time, well, this person has this issue, or these resources like McShin are available and the family is willing to to pay for it, Um, or uh, the person is prepared to to, um, acknowledge their their substance abuse um, problem and work towards it. We need to hear that information as downstream and as early and as often as possible. And, and it will only help your case the more we know about you, because then we have a more um, holistic view of you as a person, not as just your charge, but as a person. And then we can deal with what do we need to do, what community support, what therapeutic support, what substance abuse support, what employment uh, support do you need so that we don't have to see you in the future? Very good, very good. I appreciate that. And and to the point, um, substance use disorder, you know, possession charges, specifically, you know, Schedule One, Schedule Two narcotics, has a what up to ten years in prison for 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 any amount. Um, I know this because I currently have two years over my head, um, and so I say that because uh, as a possession charge, this the the way it's handled in the rest of the country is very different some places just over the river in dc for instance the the well an even greater amount for a possession charge is still a misdemeanor and up to only 180 days in jail or and or a thousand dollar fine and i say that because i've also gotten a charge in dc as well and at the time i needed to get out of that charge so I wouldn't violate in Virginia because I was on probation here and I wouldn't serve jail time in Virginia when I wouldn't at all serve jail time in DC for that charge. So I, 
I understand that we need to do things to help people, you know, to, to get people for public safety issues. I, I do get that. Um, and I think even the way the law is applied in different, you know, municipalities throughout the Commonwealth, um, I think that, that there could be some looking into that. Would you support a move towards defelonization of possession? I'm not talking decrim. I'm talking defelonization um, of that. As we see, uh, and you know, the new laws that are coming into effect July 1st, the decriminalization of marijuana possession, would you support something similar to for other drugs, you know, moving forward. And I, I know I'm putting you on a, on a limb here. <laughs> you, you don't have to go on that limb. I, I yeah. <laughs> so, so, so I will go on the, I will go on the limb as far as to say that right now I would not support that, but basically because I don't have enough um, medical knowledge about those drugs. I mean, they have been yeah. controlled substances and they're controlled substances because you know, some federal agency has deemed them to be highly toxic and dangerous to people. And so given that medical, um, that medical thought, I would not at this point say, well, you know, cocaine should become a misdemeanor. Ecstasy, you know, oxy should become a misdemeanor. Ecstasy should be a misdemeanor. Um, I will say having lived through, not as a drug prosecutor, but as a prosecutor, having lived through the late eighties and mid nineties of the worst of the crack cocaine epidemic, um, and seeing how that affected little babies in the hospital and their mothers and, um, the black community, especially, but all communities. That, that was a very scary, scary time. And that was a very, very sad time. And I don't think it's appropriate now to say that drugs that can cause that amount of harm should just be misdemeanors. Yeah. Well, and I, I see where you're coming from with the, the fear and the, you know, cause we can look at the same thing and, and see a different, I see a very different um, outcome or a very different desired outcome from that. Because I, I understand this as a public health care crisis. Substance use disorder is labeled as a mental health concern and has been labeled as such for decades. And so as we continue to try and force the jails to accommodate um, what is essentially a medical issue, uh, we are forcing the jails to do something that, A, they, they, they can't do, and B, they're not equipped to do, and, and we're just reinforcing the stigma of addiction. And so... I, I encourage a more, I'm going to say it again, robust conversation on this very topic moving forward as I also learn more myself. Because really up until I got into recovery, I thought I was a piece of crap, you know, because I had this problem. And so learning about my own, my own disease and, and, and ways to overcome my disease has been really helpful in me finding my voice and recognizing that I do matter. And that now that I have this felony <laughs> it's this felony which you know i cannot vote you know i cannot and yes i know once i get my i can get my i can 
apply to get my rights restored, but I cannot vote. I can't run for office, serve on a jury, you know, um, and, and I, you know, it's so funny. I've never really had such strong feelings on owning a gun and I've wanted to own a gun more now when I can't than in my entire life. So these are things that, that continue. And of course now, you know, I haven't even branched out into housing, you know, and the employment because I work in recovery and live in recovery. You know, what happened? Grad school mm. scholarships. Yeah, all the things. So I tripped up with my 251 in pretrial. I tripped up because I was continuing to use. Um, and I recognize that. I get that. But is there is is that a reason to make me a felon? You know, is that a reason to threaten me with I have two years of prison still over my head? You know, is that something, you know, is that really fair? You know, and, and that's not a question maybe we're going to answer right now where I'm going to convince you to change your mind on that right now. And but I do think the conversation should be open-ended on this because I, I think that we are marching towards continuing to put people of color in jail, people of minorities and in, 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 into jail, you know, and, 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 and really creating worse family problems going forward. Um, I, I do have two other, Oh, sorry. I'm sorry. No, no, no. But I, I think you and I would both agree, even if we are not going to agree today, at least on, on what uh, drug charges should be felony felonies or not is that, um, every jurisdiction needs to use your word, Nathan, more robust, more robust <laughs> community service boards and yeah. treatment centers and rapid access centers. So that when someone is ready to deal with their substance abuse disorder, it can be dealt with. And right now we don't have that support um, the way ideally we would have it in Richmond or in Rico or Chesterfield or, or across the Commonwealth or across the nation. And so uh, agencies and entities that were not designed to treat people with mental health issues or substance abuse issues have to do it because there's no place else at this point for those people to go. So let me ask you, I'm going to put you on the spot. <laughs> and Peter too. I'm going to drag him in. Right. Okay, so here's my question. If you had not been incarcerated and brought before court, would you have gotten off drugs on your own? It's a very good question, Colette, and it's not something I can easily answer because I don't think so. I don't think I would have. Um, and I say that because at the time when I was using, I knew I was um, destroying myself. I knew I was destroying my body. I knew that I was living in a in a in a in a lack of self acceptance, and you know I suffer from a disease that teaches me that tells me that I am worthless. Uh, it tells me, you know, it's a, a disease of low self-esteem. And as you, the more you use, the worse you feel, even though you're trying to feel like you. So, you know, as I continued to do that, I didn't know what resources were available to me. And I thought I was the only one. Um, and I liken it to, you know, 25 years ago when I was coming out as a gay man. You know, I didn't think I was the only person at that time. And at the time, it was illegal. You know, it took a court case, uh, several court cases, and continues to take court cases to to uh, make it, you know, something that's just acceptable, you know, at least in terms of the, the, the public sphere. So, you know, I didn't know what was out there. I didn't know the resources. I didn't know what there was. And so I am, I'm actually, I'll tell you, I tell everybody, I'm very grateful to have been arrested because the first time I got arrested, 
had no idea what recovery was, wasn't introduced to recovery, and I didn't find recovery. I violated in pretrial. I went to jail. I, you know, for a couple of days, you know, I got sentenced uh, to two years over, you know, two years suspended um, with two years probation as a felon because I violated the 251. And then I violated in probation. And when I violated in probation, I went back to jail, and that's where I found the McShin pod. And only then did I get an introduction to recovery. You know, when I was in pretrial, Colette, let me tell you this, I walked in, I dressed up in a clean cut shirt, you know, button down shirt. I, my hair was short at the time, you clean shave. And I would, walk, yeah, right, I looked, I looked like I was supposed to look and I walked into my pretrial and at the time I was using heavier than I had been in a long time. I was just spacing my use so I could pass a test. And so when I did that, you know, one time after several months of going in, you know, finally looked at this woman who I'd been seeing, you know, for weeks and weeks and weeks. And I, she was a nice enough lady. Her heart was in the right place. But I looked at her and said, this is really what you're doing. You're making felons of people with a, you know, with a, with a healthcare issue. And she's like, she looked at me and without any irony whatsoever, she looked at me and said, Nathan, but look at how well you're doing. I had lost 35 pounds in front of this lady. You know, I had my job gone, my family relation. She had no idea what was going on with me. And I, I, I didn't have an introduction at that time. It wasn't until I found somebody else who had gone through it. And that was in a McShin recovery pod where somebody came into the jail and said, you know what? I was in your shoes. I can show you the way out. You know, not literally out of the jail, but, you know, out of the way. of. So I'm grateful for that. However, what I think we can do instead of that is that we can look at the way Portugal handles their 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 drug problem over there. Okay. You know, where we not where we destigmatize and allow for people to get help when they need it. The rapid access is amazing. I love that you said that rapid access and and using the CSBs. Of course, you know, um, you know historically we jockey for money with the CSBs. I'm all for anything that helps. And so, you know, when we have people like at the, the Portugal model, which essentially decriminalized all drugs and said, you know what, we're going to try to focus on helping people. And we're going to say, you know, we're going to pick you up and we're going to take you somewhere. And if you're not willing, you know, after a certain amount of time, you know, you're, so there's going to be consequences. But the consequences aren't, you know, here, let me stick you with a bunch of violent people who don't, you know, without any access to anything and take you away from any sort of recovery capital you might already have um, and continue to destigmatize you. And oh, by the way, you're screwed for the rest of your life. <laughs> so, so I don't know the answer. There's not a, an easy answer for that because in recovery, you teach I'm taught to live in the present and to make goals for the future, but live in the present and be flexible and to not spend so much time in the past that I am not moving forward. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah. I am grateful for my time in the jail because it makes me more of an advocate for what I want to do. You know, voting rights to me is a huge problem. I had no idea that was a problem for felons. I didn't know that was a thing in Virginia. And we're like one of the worst in the country. So I found something to be very passionate about and something I want to fight for, you know, moving forward as we continue. To, and, and, and for all felons, not just substance use disorder. So, you know, I, I, I don't know that what I don't have a good answer for you, but I'm also grateful that I did find recovery in jail. Yeah. What, what is that? Was, well, hey. <laughs> um, well, I know for me, um, I don't think I would have found recovery and sobriety without being incarcerated this last time. Uh, I may have found it eventually, but I think being arrested and going to jail kind of sped up the process because 
once I got the drugs out of my system, I started thinking a little more clearly. I could see where my life was going and where it was at. Okay. So, so if we were going to, if Nathan, you and Peter and I are the, are the kings and queens of the universe, <laughs> then, then where, where do you plug in? Where do you plug in to have the most impact on someone who has a substance abuse problem? Yeah. That's a that's a great question. And and it's for me, you know, being an outspoken advocate as a face as a as I hope to be a positive face and voice of recovery, every day, almost every day, um, I've I've started getting phone calls from people. And to be available for when somebody reaches out, because willingness can be just a brief fleeting moment for a lot of individuals, for most of us in active addiction. And when that hand comes out to be able to grab it and say, you know what, here, let me help you. You know, not let me, don't let me shame you. I'm not going to put blame and hurt on you. Because so often, Colette, when people come to me in that moment, there, there's, there's a lot of tears. There are a lot of, um, I'm such an awful person. I hate myself. I'm so sorry to do this to you, Nathan. I'm so sorry. And I'm like, come on, man, let's just get something to eat. You know, let's sit down and relax. And, and, and I, I you know, I'm, I have the best job in the world. I, I really do. I love what I do. I love being able to, to meet people right there where they are, um, every day. As, as a house leader, the, being a house leader has been the most, one of the most rewarding experiences of my life next to marrying my sister. That's another story. <laughs> but um, <laughs> I had to throw that joke in there. Um, but it's, it's, it's to be able to, to be a person who's, who's walked in sho the shoes mm -hmm. and to say, you know what, I may not have the answer, but you know, here's somebody who does have an answer. And to be able to work with individuals, <laughs> Jason, I see you there, to be able to work with individuals every single day and, and to not put the blame and the shame. And that was, that was hard for me as a, when I first got into recovery, because I hated who I was and what I had become for so long that I th thought anybody else who was like, that was also someone I should shame and blame too. And I realized that doesn't help anybody. So, you know, I, I, where is the point? I think the point is where the person's willing you know, and, and to be able to just be available, you know, and answer my phone when I can, you know, not threaten um, to, to, to really try and meet people, you know, on a human level where we are, mm -hmm. you know, and for me, for me, it's as simple as making, and I keep talking about it, but the reality is for me, just simply making a meal and having a meal with somebody mm -hmm. is, is vital to me making a connection with somebody. You know, it's, it's, and I learned that here. Well, I learned that through my family because I have a family, a, a robust family of eaters. <laughs> um, but when you come here and I know you've been here at McShin, you know, we have these big cookouts and it's always eats and food and fun. And, and, and because recovery is a blast, you know, we do a great, we do a lot of cool things in recovery, you know, to be able to go whitewater rafting on the James river a couple months after I'd, you know, been in basically the pits of hell, you know, in DC, that's where I did my using mostly. Um, it's, it's incredible to be able to show that. And, you know, it's, where do we do that? Well, we support organizations like ours. We support partnerships like a partnership with Richmond city, with Henrico County, you know, with the other agencies that we work with and just being able to, to be out there. I mean, we aren't the only answer. We know that, you know, there are other people, other methods, you know, we, we have access to clinical staff, you know, we're not a clinical organization, so we need, you know, other avenues to treat other, you know, different issues. 
but that's that's I think I think I, somewhere in there is the answer <laughs> to what you asked me. Um, <laughs> I'm a very lucky guy, Colette. <laughs> um, I do have two other questions for you here. Okay. Uh, two two kind of big questions actually. So as you know, um, marijuana has been decriminalized. Mm-hmm. Um, now the new laws go into effect July first. Now, when Shannon was here, when when Commonwealth Attorney Shannon Taylor was here a couple of weeks ago, we had the the same conversation, and she was talking about treating, trying to push things off until July first, so that the logs applied as it's going to be applied at the yeah. time. How, how how do you feel about this change? Or maybe you don't want to opine about your feelings, but how how are you coping with this change? How about that? Yeah, so we're we're doing something separate and. and- to a certain extent, COVID has actually helped that because the courts have been on a restricted schedule since the beginning of March. Mm-hmm. And so the courts um, essentially on their own orders have continued cases uh, that would have been resolved in March and April and May now um, off for weeks. Uh, and so it's it looks like by the time July 1st gets here, the courts might finally be up and running and so we're going to follow um, that thought process of essentially treating everybody who's charged with a simple first possession of marijuana um, the way we charge, the way we treat people now. And as I said, for a lot of those, um, uh, for those cases, it'll be the what uh, $25 fine. I think it's yeah. a $5 civil fine now. So. Yeah, I think so. Not now, but starting July first. Yeah, with a uh, with a it would seem um, with studies towards legalization uh, going forward. So, mm-hmm. um, and I won't even ask you your opinions on that because that really is kind of out the scope of everybody here, I suppose. <laughs> Unless you're running for some other office in the future and you want to jump out on it, <laughs> but I will. <laughs> I, I I will say this that I will be shocked if marijuana, simple possession of marijuana is not legal, completely legalized in Virginia within the next year or two. Okay. I All right. That's happen. You're, you see, and I actually, I've been saying five years, so I, I you, and you have more, you have more knowledge than I do, so. Well, okay. Not that, but. Um, ah, this is a good question. All right, so Kim, um, at, Kim, I'm sorry, I always butcher your last name, but Kim asks, if marijuana is going to be decriminalized, how will probation officers handle those who test positive for it? And I, now, I suppose, is, the, is a good question for that. Are, there, are, are POs um, violating people for simple possession? I mean, for testing positive? Yeah, so, so right now, that's, um, that is not happening. Nobody's being incarcerated. No sanctions are being um, given. I think people are... The, the probation officers um, are just making note of that. And when I'm talking about probation officers, I'm talking about people in Richmond who are with the Department of Adult um, uh, Pretrial Services and probation services, not um, DOC or um, things like that. And if you test positive, and if you test positive, but marijuana has been decriminalized or legalized, then you're testing positive for a substance to a certain extent. It's all right for you to, it's all right for you to possess, except that you are in violation of a court's order not to possess it. So I think that is something (laughs) to 
going to have to be worked out, um, you know, with, with the uh, with pro, uh, pre-trial. It, it's, it is kind of an ugly catch-22 there. Yeah. Um, yeah, I know there's a there's a lot to be worked out still with that. And one one final question I do have for you. Um the new Good Samaritan laws come into effect in July on July 1st. And you know, I, I, I will go out on a limb myself and say that Richmond City has probably been a little more progressive in its approach to handling phone calls um, from people who are using, who are making phone calls for other people who are overdosing in front of them. The new law expands the um or I should say, expands the rights of the individual overdosing. Maybe it expands the rights. Well, you know the new law coming out. Of, right? um, this is Senate Bill 667. Uh, Senator Boisco put that through um, this session. You know what I'm talking about, I think. Yes. Do you, how, how do you feel like, um, how is that being applied? How has the law been applied already? And what do you see as a change in the way your office, or at least not your office, but the way, uh, Richmond City handles uh, cases like that? So we don't actually have that many cases in Richmond. Um, you know, I think it was, I can't remember the young, you remember the young woman's name, Nathan, whose parents were really involved with the General Assembly? And oh, you put me on the spot. Okay. Um, I, know, I, I know exactly who you're talking about, but I, yeah. I can't um, remember her name either. But, but, but essentially... Um, mm -hmm. what happened in that case was she went to a man's house, they did drugs, um, and then she overdosed while there. And he was aware that she was overdosing. Um, other people who were there called the police to the house and the police came and that man hid her body somewhere, did not try to get treatment for her, did not tell the police hey, look, you know, I don't want to say what happened, but here's a sick person in my house. Um, and so then she died. And yeah. so I, I don't, I, I am concerned that not what the law says, which is essentially if you are overdosing and you call the police, the police will not charge you. Um, if somebody sees you overdosing, and they are the cause of your overdosing, they will not be charged. Um, but the problem is that there isn't any follow-up about, okay, since you're overdosing, you're not gonna be charged. How do we prevent this from happening in the future? You know, there, there is no, you won't be charged, but you will be you know, directed to some therapeutic situation, right, or to McShin or to RBHA or, you know, to wherever. There's nothing. And so this happens, perhaps the police and MCV or wherever the hospital is saves this person's life, but there's no, other than perhaps their life being saved, there's no future positive benefit. You know, that's, that's exactly a concern. I'm sorry, I missed that last part. And there's nothing to stop it from happening again. Right. And that's, that's, that's a huge, incredible concern that uh, many of us have expressed. And many of us in recovery actually spoke out against the bill um, because of that. Some of us in recovery did. Uh, I was, I'm very much for the bill. Um, one bill that actually 
another bill that came through um, this year that that sort of somewhat addresses it, I think in sort of a milk toast way, uh, was called Danny's Bill, uh, Danny's Law. And Danny's Law, as it was originally set, would have put PRSs in the in the hospitals, would have would have done a lot more. It was a <laughs> I keep using this word. It was a more robust um, uh, package of, of of help for individuals experiencing a a, a substance use related emergency um, such as an overdose. Um, however, the bill as it as that passed um, created a space for the Department of Health in Virginia to consistently make a policies and procedures to address overdoses so that we're not just putting people who overdose back out on the street right away. Mm -hmm. And, and yeah, and I think that's a good first step. And, and one of the reasons uh, we were so adamant about supporting that, not no, no, because Danny, the, the woman, Julie Funkhauser, who was part of that bill is such an incredible person and advocate and her, and her husband, it was such a sad passing. Um, but, but being because we want to be a part of that conversation and ensuring that the recovery community can be part of mental health uh, and excuse me medically medical issues you know medical health issues and, and procedures and making sure that we're part of that conversation so you know it's a good first step um, I know that uh, we would like to see uh, peer, PRS a, a peer recovery support specialists in you know in in the hospitals you know talking to individuals um, I know in some places in Virginia they've had ride-alongs some places in the country they've very successfully had these ride-alongs with first responders so that we can you know immediate help um, at a moment where an individual might be at their most willing to see that there can be something different instead of seeing um, you know, seeing their lives as worthless. So um, I, I realized, I just looked at the time. We've been talking for quite a while. I really am grateful for the time. Um, and it's been such a fun and easy conversation. Thank you so much. Um, any, any, uh, let me look at these comments here. Did I miss anything, Todd? Uh, I know Kim said a few things. I'm sorry. How long does it take for someone to be assigned an attorney after being charged? Uh, Kelly Widows asks. Okay. It's probably different, different every community, but yeah. Yeah, well, I can at least speak to Richmond. So in Richmond, um, generally, it's no longer than 72 hours. So in a worst case scenario, if you were arrested on a Friday and didn't get bond from the magistrate and were taken to the jail, you would spend, you know, Friday night, Saturday, Sunday in the jail. And then Monday morning, you would be brought before a court. Um, and that's when you would be given the chance to either hire your own attorney or a public defender would be appointed to you. But, you know, on the other end of the spectrum, um, you know, if, if you're arrested on a Monday night, Tuesday morning, you're going to be in court. So it's it's no more usually than 72 hours. Okay, excellent. And Kim, Kim also said, uh, she previously asked about the marijuana. Kim also says many lives could be saved if other people, um, if other people can call 911 without worrying about being arrested. And I think the numbers that we looked at at the time, um, it was a, it was a huge, I forget what the numbers were Colette, but when we were looking at the numbers and, and the, the 911 calls in other States that had implemented uh, broader good Samaritan laws, similar to what was passed here, um, the, the numbers of people who called um, increased. So, you know, there, there's data to support that this might be helpful. Um, and I get your concern is very, very much, uh, uh, I appreciate your concern about getting access to treatment and recovery, you know, as necessary. It's definitely something that's on my mind as well. 
Um, I do want to thank you again for participating. I know that we just took a whole hour and I didn't realize it was so long. Um, I want to thank you for coming. Do you have any final thoughts before we go? Nope. I just want to thank you for giving me the opportunity to be on your program. It was fun. Peter is really talkative. So next time you have to kind of shut him down a little. But <laughs> other, than that, other than that, it was great. Well, Colette, if you tune in on Tuesday at 2 o'clock, you'll see Peter here with his roommate, Patrick, um, for a new person's to recovery spotlight that we do every Tuesday. And this Tuesday will be his final participation in that context. Okay. And he will have his older sister with um, who will be, uh, uh, what do we call this, uh, 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 streamyarding in. And Patrick, who will be with him, um, his parents will be also streamyarding in as well. So you'll be able to see the recovery. And, and he and Patrick really play off each other well. Oh, you know, okay. So it's a, it's a good conversation. It has been really fun the last few weeks to have the two. Um, I want to thank you, Todd, for being an amazing producer over there. Thank you all. Thank you. And, of course, Peter, thank you for participating. Uh, one one tiny final question for you, and I think this probably is the most important thing that I can ask you. Um, what are you grateful for today, Colette? Mm. Wow. Um, I'm grateful that my family is safe and healthy. Excellent. Yeah. Peter, what are you grateful for today? Everybody. Um, I'm grateful just to have a roof over my head and food to eat. Yeah. 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 I'm, I'm grateful for that chili I'm going home to later. Yeah, I'm a little jealous. <laughs> Todd, what are you grateful for today, sir? I'm grateful tonight. We have uh, After Hours at 9 with, uh, <laughs> with, with Alex Bond and Frank uh, Bellinger with uh, – Andrew, um, actually, Andrew Rose. Andrew Rose, and then tomorrow night we actually have John Schinholzer with Parker Walton and Christina Dent. So that's my gratitude for the weekend. And so. That's for getting the herd after hours. <laughs> Wait, David, before we go, why is it get in the herd? <laughs> Very good question. So. Um, we talk about, uh, we think about the a herd mentality, right? Mm -hmm. And we think about um, the, the individuals in the middle of the herd are the safest from the predators that are out there, you know, ready to jump in, the lions. You know, you think of about a pack of gazelles, maybe, a herd of, a herd of gazelles. And I don't know if they're a herd, whatever they are, you know what I'm saying. Um, a herd of buffalo, you know, trying to get away from the hyenas that might try to come at them. And so when you try to, when you get closer to the middle of the herd, you're more protected from the forces that might pull you out and destroy you. So we say get in the herd and be a part of that. Yeah. That makes sense. <laughs> okay. It's all about connections and oh. being with people. You know, um, thank you again so much. It's great to see you. I appreciate you being here. And to everybody listening, it's been a wonderful week. We will see you all again on, I will see you all again on Tuesday at 2 p.m. for our new participant spotlight. And then next week we have John, I believe we have John, Jesse, and Honesty, our, our dream team uh, on Wednesday. Thursday, oh my goodness, what do we have the rest of the week? Thursday we have... Oh, it's escaping me. We have somebody cool next Thursday. Next Friday, though, we'll skip over Thursday. Next Friday, I got Michael King. Michael King, he is the the project coordinator for the um, community change uh, community catalyst. So, I look forward to a good week ahead. Thank you, everybody, and thank you again, Colette. We'll see you again next time. Give me a call if you need anything. Okay. Thank Thanks. you. Be safe. Be safe yourself. Bye. Bye.